Well, good morning, church. Whoo, you're alive. I love it. The coffee has kicked in. We're ready to go. My name is Pastor Eric Grosinger. I'm the pastor of student ministries here at Faith. And it is a joy to be with you again. Um, it's been a great morning, hasn't it? We have heard from our children in our VBS this past week, incredible amount of ministry here locally that we had uh, this past week here. And uh, we've heard from the Leesons, um, who are our global missionaries over in Slovakia. It just reminded, I was reminded as I was listening to them, how we are local but also global in our mission effort. And, uh, and how you as a church, we together corporately, have um, supported and are um, speaking out the gospel of Jesus, um, both to children, to students, to adults. Um, what an encouraging thing for us to be a part of. The name that is above all names, being able to proclaim that clearly to those that are around us. Um, the only thing I would probably take issue with um, when I heard about uh, the Leesons was um, his love for KFC. And um, I'm thinking that at some point over the next couple of months, Tracy, we need to go to Chick-fil-A, and I need to treat you to the world's best chicken sandwich, um, minus a pickle um, on the top of that, and uh, then we'll have another conversation about where, Chick- where uh, KFC stands in your ranking, because um, uh, we all know Chick-fil-A is, is what they're going to serve in heaven. Um, <laughs> just kidding on that one. Maybe. Um, uh, before we jump into our text today, I want to make you aware of uh, one other uh, mission opportunity that I want to encourage you to take advantage of. Uh, in a couple of weeks, our high school students and our adult leaders will be heading out to Colorado for our yearly missions trip. This year, we're taking um, a group out to Denver, and uh, we're going to be taking part in a week-long intensive evangelism training and equipping conference called Lead the Cause. Uh, it's partnered up with Dare to Share Ministries. And um, we are desiring and would be so grateful if you would consider partnering with us in prayer. And so this week, we have out on the table, just next to the Leesons out there in the lobby, our uh, prayer cards for each one of our students and our adult leaders. And I want to encourage you, after the service today, if you wouldn't mind, uh, going back and picking one out, and then jotting your name down on the sheet so we kind of have a record of who's, uh, who's praying for who. And um, take that home, commit to pray on a regular basis, um, beginning now for our students and our adult leaders, and uh, even consider um, encouraging them with a, a little treat bag, a little goodie bag that you can return back next Sunday um, that they can take along on their trip. Um, my card's out there too, um, and we forgot to put Chick-fil-A on there, so um, no, but in all seriousness, we would consider it a joy if you would consider partnering with us in prayer. As, uh, as we seek to make the gospel great and be better equipped so we can share that gospel um, back here at home. I will also say that this week, Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, you can be praying for our student ministry. On Tuesday, we have a, a large outreach event to our middle school students here at our church. And on Wednesday, we have one with our high school students. Um, we are, uh, we're really uh, um, involving uh, many of our students in sharing the gospel. And we're going to do that through hosting a NERF event here at our church. So um, we are hoping that our students are going to invite their friends who have students preparing to share their testimony and um, encourage you to be in prayer for that on Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. Well, last week, uh, if you were here, we took a look at Ephesians chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 10. And this week, we're going to finish looking at that chapter, um, verses 11 through 22. And if you have your Bibles and would like to open those to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 11 through the end of the chapter. But as we go there, I, I think it would be helpful for us as we step back and we first take a look at the greater intent and the purpose that Paul had when he wrote this letter. See, Paul addressed this letter to those who had put their faith and trust in Christ from the town of Ephesus. Paul, who was in prison at the time, he wrote this letter to remind the believers who they were and how they were to live in light of their new identity. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul lays out a theological description of who they are and the power that they now have available to them to live the life that God has called them to live. We talked a little bit about that power last week, if you were here. The the deutimous power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him in the heavenly realms and gave Him authority over all things. And this power, this deutimous power, took them from who they were, being spiritually dead and, and helpless and without hope, and transformed them to who they are today, being alive in Christ by the grace and the work of the cross. And we saw that our passage last week, we could summarize it in the phrase that sin leads to death, but Jesus leads to life. Well, in the second half of Ephesians, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul unpacks more about what this new identity and and this way of life looks like for the believers. And a lot of that involves the interactions and the relationships that we have with other people. Because when we become transformed by the gospel, we are no longer just people. We become the people of God. We're brought together in Christ, and we become the church. And as the church, this collective body of believers, we have an incredible opportunity, but also a responsibility to be a testimony to a dying world. So, as we approach our passage today, I want to encourage us to keep this in mind, this greater idea that we are the people of God, God's workmanship, who have been brought together as the church, and who have a opportunity and a responsibility to reflect the work that he's done in our lives to a lost and dying world. Would you read with me as I read Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, reading from the NIV. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, 
by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Well, Paul opens this passage with the phrase and the word, therefore. You know, and typically when you hear the word therefore, it serves as a transition from what was just said to looking at what the results or the impact is from what was just said. And in this case, Paul had just finished previously describing the spiritual past of the Ephesian believers in verses 1 through 10, what we looked at last week. Primarily that they were spiritually dead. They are without any opportunity for life. They are without hope. Without the ability to be restored back to God. But in verse 4 we remember we said, But God took it upon himself to initiate that process that brought about their salvation by sending Jesus down and taking on the punishment of their sin. And because of the death and resurrection, he offers them the free gift of eternal life by grace through faith, if they choose to receive it. And we talked last week how that's not just their spiritual past, it's also our spiritual past. The major dilemma has now become a massive offer, but we need to choose to receive it. Sin leads to death, but Jesus leads to life. But Paul also, in this opening sentence of this passage, also challenges the believers to remember. You know, and remember is an interesting word, isn't it? It's, it, it's a word that brings back to mind, or, or to think of something again so that it won't be forgotten. You know, in the world today, we, we're continually confronted with so much information, so many ideas, and so many experiences that it's it's really hard to remember what happened yesterday, let alone what we're supposed to remember to get at the grocery store before we come home, right? You know, and so what have we done? We've we've developed methods and, and approaches to help us remember things that are important. For many of us, maybe it's a paper and a pencil where we jot down, you know, things and and uh, the grocery list, for example, or or special dates. Uh, for some of us, it's maybe sticky notes that we put on our computer in our office, on our cubicle, or on the walls to remind us of things that are important. And for others of us, maybe we download an app and put it on our phone, and we set up little reminders and alarms so that we don't forget important dates and, and birthdays or anniversaries or the grocery list. Whatever it is, we all find ways to help us remember things that we don't want to forget. Or what about remembering what life used to be like years ago? You know, when I was younger, uh, I would often hear my grandparents begin a story by saying, you know, back in the old days, right? You know, it was fascinating for me to to hear them remember and, and to recount the stories and the situations in their lives of what things were like when they were younger. 
Maybe they were challenges. Maybe they were fun times or, or, or what school was like for them or things they used to play with or, or, uh, or how they did their things in their home. A lot of fun memories for them. And I almost vowed to never use that phrase when I got older because I knew that I'd only be dating myself when I said it, right? Anybody with me on that? You know, but this past week I, uh, I found something that took me back to the old days. I want to share it with you. Um, for those of you that were maybe born um, past 1995, 1998, you may not know what this is. Um, it's actually about the size of a deck of cards, and it's what we call a cassette tape. Uh, how many of you guys had cassette tapes when you were growing up? Yeah, you know where, okay. So, uh, so those of you that, that aren't familiar with what a cassette tape is, they come in these little... Um, rectangular cases, all right? They, they open up like this, and, and what you do is you take it out, and, it, and it's this little pla- hard plastic shell. And inside this plastic shell are, is, is this little ribbon, and it's wound up around these two little plastic spools. And through the magic of technology, which I still can't fathom, there are, there's music recorded on this ribbon. And so, as growing up, you would have a tape player where you would put this into the tape player, and through the magic of technology, as music comes out of your speaker. Fascinating concept, right? Now, we all know if you had a tape, had a cassette tape like this, um, sometimes they didn't always work, right? And, uh, and sometimes the ribbon, the tape itself, would actually pull out of the cassette thing, right? Now, whatever this thing is called, yeah, it's like, um, but, uh, now we all know what the trick was to make that change, right? We all found our local pencil and we stuck it in there and we just kind of spun it around, right? Who's with me on that? Yeah, so we all know what that's like, right? The good old days of cassette tapes. Now, do we want to go back farther? Do we want to talk about 33 and a third RPM LPs? Anybody? We want to talk about 8-track tapes? Anybody? Yeah, that's right. We want to talk about VHS tapes. Do we want to talk about Betamax? Come on, who had a beta player at their house? Thought that was the next best thing. Um, do we want to talk about laser discs? Anybody have a laser disc? Those are even more rare, right? But, uh, you know, I think about this, and it's so much fun to remember what it was like when we were younger. You know, it brings back certain emotions and, and memories and, and great moments. But it also causes us to think about how things have transformed so quickly in such a short amount of time. You know, in a similar way, Paul is highlighting something that's extremely important for us in our own spiritual journey with Christ. And it's the role of remembering who we were in the old days, before Christ. Because when we fail to remember our past and where we used to be apart from Christ, we lose sight of the significance and the majesty and the wonder of what Christ did for us on the cross. And we lose the fact that we, we the recognizing that the transformation that has happened in our own lives over the course of that time. I think we also run the risk, when we fail to remember our past, we run the risk of losing our urgency to share this good news of the gospel 
with those around us. Because we forget that we ourselves were spiritually dead and in need of a Savior. And we also forget that there are others who are spiritually dead and in need of a Savior. So Paul reminds them, hey, remember that you were dead apart from Christ. But he also reminds the believers in verses 11 and 12 that they were on the outside looking in. Let me read those verses again. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. See, the Gentiles, they were the people on the other side. Right? There are the haves, and there are the have-nots. And the Gentiles knew very clearly the fact that they were part of the have-nots. There was a division between them and the Jews. See, God chose to work with the nation of Israel, and therefore salvation wasn't available to other people. There were only a few options that were made that would allow a non-Jew to become a Jewish follower. But Paul was reminding them that they were not Jewish. Therefore, they were not able to be a part of what the Jews had. In fact, he goes so far as to specifically say that they were uncircumcised. This is a term that these Gentiles knew really, really well. Because the Jews would flaunt that term in front of the Gentiles. They would continually remind them that they were not circumcised. Therefore, they were not in with the group. It was a very negative, very demeaning description of who they were. And it only reminded the Gentiles more and more of who they were not. The Gentiles, they didn't come from a rich family heritage and legacy like the Jews did. The Gentiles didn't have the law. The Gentiles were on the outside looking in. And Paul wanted to remind them of that. And he calls out five ways in verses 11 and 12. First of all, they were separated from Christ. And the term that was used here for Christ more accurately means that they were separated from the Messiah. As in, the promised one who was to come. See, this was something that was exclusive to the Jews. Something that the Jews had to look forward to. The Gentiles, you don't have anybody coming for you. You don't have that to look forward to. You don't have anything to anticipate. The Gentiles, they were also excluded from citizenship in Israel. Because of that, they weren't able to enjoy the legal rights and the the status and the privileges that Jews were entitled to. Well, they were also a foreigner to the covenants of the promise that God made to Israel. See, the Gentiles, they, they weren't privy to any of those promises because, you know, God didn't make them any promises to them. The Jews, they had the, the Abrahamic covenants, the Davidic covenants, the Mosaic covenants. For the Gentiles, nothing. The Gentiles were also without hope. You know, without hope because they didn't have anything that gave them assurance or a better outlook of what was yet to come. And when you're without hope, that's a difficult place to live. Because without hope, your mindset begins to shift from thinking that things are going to get better, that that you're going to make it through this difficult time, that that help is on the way, that you can do it. 
someone or something is going to come. But without hope, no one's coming. There's no way out. There's no redemption. No chance of anything different happening for you. So you give up. You surrender. You retreat. And you begin to live life with no hope. Lastly, Paul reminds them that they were without God in the world. They lacked a moral compass, a direction, a a clarity in their lives because they were separated from the one true God. Paul is saying, Gentiles, this is who you were. (laughs) You were separated from Christ. You were without hope. You were without the promises. You were without the covenants. You were without any citizenship, the rights and privileges. You had no chance of being in a relationship with God. But now, Paul transitions in verse 13 to those two powerful words. Don't you just love how Paul paints this entirely bleak picture and outlook on life to the Gentiles, and then he just throws these two small words into the mix. But now. You know, we saw the significance of that word but last week. In verse 4 that we looked at, right? It's a, it's a word that brings about interruption, a change from what's expected, a, a redirection of a plan. And in that case, as is in this one here, the but changes everything. And specifically, it changes the status and the direction of the relationship and the connection that the Gentiles had with God. Verse 14, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's the person and the work of Jesus that these Gentiles and us were reconciled to God and made new. Notice that this verse does not say, but because you worshipped at the temple every week, you've been brought near to God. But because you obeyed the laws, you are now near to God. But because you performed all these righteous acts, you've been brought near to God. No, Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ Jesus and because it's only in him that our old becomes new. That's the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? God takes what is dead and he transforms it into life. Not by anything that we do on our own merit, but by what Jesus has done. Because he's 100% God and 100% man without sin. And in this case, he took the Gentiles who are far away from God and he brought them near through the cross of Christ and he gave them peace. Warren Wearsby once said, Neither our spiritual death nor our spiritual distance is beyond the power and the grace of God. In Christ, we have peace with God. Some of you may have heard of or, or have read the book The Peace Child by Don Richardson. It recounts the story of Don and his wife Carol, who felt called to move to New Guinea back in 1962 with their seven month old baby. They felt called to live among the Sawi tribe, one of the most cannibalistic, head hunting tribes who lived in that jungle among many. But they were motivated by the gospel, motivated by the desire that these people need to hear the good news of Jesus. So they packed up all of their things and headed there. 
And as they were getting accustomed to the area and the people, they had some difficulty learning the Sawi language. The difficulty of the language made it really hard to communicate with those people. For example, they realized that there were 19 different tenses for one verb in that language. After a lot of training and, and learning, Don finally was able to master the language enough that he began to communicate with them about the message of the gospel. And as he would unfold the, the story of the gospel, and as he would get to the end of Jesus' life, he noticed a very odd thing that happened. All the people began to clap for Judas. They'd stand up and they'd say, Yeah, Judas! Woo, Judas! They loved Judas because in that culture, their entire culture was established on the value of a traitor. The belief was if you could become so ingrained in the life of someone else and then have the ability to turn on them on a moment's notice and kill them, you were considered a hero and a victor amongst the tribe. Jesus? Oh yeah, he came, he was loving and he cared for people and he loved others and he served them and healed and and, and fed them and all this stuff, but ooh, Jesus. Yeah, Judas! Woo! Give it up for Judas! Now imagine for a moment, you uprooted your entire family, moved from Canada down to New Guinea with your seven-month-old child. You endured diseases, malaria, hepatitis, Dysentery. You lived among these violent people. You studied the language and you understood how you can best communicate with them. All for the purpose of sharing the gospel. All for the purpose of talking about the hope that lies with Jesus and a relationship with Him. And as you get to that point and you come to the end, Woo, Judas! We don't want Jesus, we want Judas. Well, as the time went on, the violence continued to increase amongst the neighboring tribes. And it came to the point where the Richardsons decided that they needed to head out and they needed to return back home to Canada. The leaders of the tribe really didn't want them to leave because they realized if they left, they were going to lose a pretty significant resource. Don's wife, Carol, was a doctor. And so she treated many of the tribal members medically and helped them with some of their illnesses. And so the Sawi tribal leaders, they came together with the leaders of the other tribes and the goal was to make peace with one another in an effort to not let the Richardsons leave. Stop and think about this for a second. How difficult is it going to be to make peace among warring tribes in a culture where Judas the traitor, is valued and lifted up. How can you have confidence that as you stand across and shake hands with your enemy, that he is not going to be one who is going to turn coat on you in no time? So, the warring tribes came together, and as they came together to talk through these differences and to seek about peace, unknown what was going to happen, if it was even going to work, there's a man from one of the tribes from the back came rushing up to the front and he presented to the opposing tribal leader his newborn baby son as a permanent gift to the opposing tribe. 
Don learned something very powerful that day, that in that culture, what was understood at that moment was that if a man gave up his newborn son to the opposing tribe, that man could be trusted. He was not Judas. He also learned that day that that child, the name of that child, who was presented as a permanent gift to the opposing tribe, became known as the peace child. After witnessing this, Richardson knew how he was going to communicate the gospel to these people. So he went back and he began to unpack the gospel to these people one more time. And he began to talk about how we, all of us, were at war against God. We were enemies of God. But yet, when we were so far from Him, God came up from the back to the front of the line and presented to us the peace child, Jesus. God can be trusted. You who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus came to abolish and to destroy the barrier that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. The the system of laws and rules and regulations and, and all the animosity that these laws created between these two groups. He came to abolish those laws, to make them inoperative, if you will. And to bring about one new humanity, to reconcile them to himself under the cross of Christ. And to be the place where his spirit would dwell. And according to verse 18 in Ephesians chapter 2, they are now both able to access the Father by the same spirit. There's no more haves and have-nots. There's no more those who are in, those who are out, those who have the law, those who don't have the law. There's one humanity, and that's been brought about by the peace that was made by the blood of Christ. You know, there's many in our world today that are searching for peace. You know, some are looking for it in their possessions. But we all know those are things that, you know, one day we buy and we think that they're going to be helpful and, and provide that peace for us. And the next thing we know, they're in the bin for the garage sale with a 50-cent sticker on them. Peace isn't found in relationships with others. It's not found in our finances where one day, you know, our, our investment portfolio is at an all-time record high and a week later it's at a five-year low. Peace isn't found in our circumstances that change every day, maybe multiple times a day. No, peace is found in a person. And that person is Jesus And as we remain in Christ, as we abide in the vine from John, we also have the ability to know and experience this peace through whatever happens in our daily lives. It doesn't mean that life is going to be all rosy and smooth and and everything's going to be good. Many of us here today have experienced a deep, significant amount of pain and challenges. Some of those trials and challenges, they don't go away. But the difference is that in the midst of those, we have Jesus. He is our peace. Well, Paul wraps up this passage by describing the new aim and the goals for the people of God, the church, 
and what we should be striving for. And that has become a dwelling that is being built up in which God lives by his spirit. See, in the Old Testament, the temple would be the physical place where God would reside. But in the New Testament, the church, or the people of God, is the place where God, through the Holy Spirit, is to reside. And alongside the saints who have gone before us, and the apostles and the prophets who have already laid the foundation through their teaching, we align ourselves with Christ, the chief cornerstone. And we grow as a body, and we reflect the glory and the majesty of God to our community and to the world that's around us. So as we wrap up our time this morning in this passage, I want to ask us, as those who have been reconciled to Christ and are the people of God, how are you and I contributing to the growth and the building, the building up of our corporate body, the church? How are you and I growing? How are we encouraging other people to grow in the areas of becoming a fully devoted follower of Jesus? as our church has proclaimed, is our vision and our goal. Are we committing ourselves to exploring and to discussing God's word with others in a community to sharpen one another? Are we asking the Lord to open our eyes to the opportunities that he gives us in the neighborhood, in our office, in the stores, to share the good news of the gospel with others? Are we willing to engage in a gospel conversation? Are we seeking the Lord in the many different directions and and decisions that we need to make in our lives and with our families? Are we open to that direction that he calls us to go? Are we keeping short accounts with others who wrong us? Do we seek forgiveness when we've wronged them as a way to model healthy and peaceful relationships with Christ? Or never to become stagnant or idle as the people of God. But we're called to be a community of people that is continuously building and growing in the Lord, seeking after Him and His desires for us so that we and others can be reconciled to Christ and also become a part of the people of God, the church. Because we've been brought near to God by Christ, let's commit to being a body of believers where our ongoing goal and our ongoing aim is to be a place where God is pleased to dwell. And He is given the glory and the honor for it. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for this passage this morning that we've been able to look at. As we've been reminded of who we were apart from Christ, God, You have now called us to a new goal, to a new purpose, because we are in Christ. As a church, Father, I pray that we would commit ourselves to continual growth, that we would be a place where you would dwell in your spirit and it would be a way that we can reflect honor and glory to you and where others can be attracted to also being a part. In your name we pray. Amen.